Good to see you. You stuck around. This is good. We're starting a new series today called Free. And I want to begin today with a truism, something that is true, something that most of us at some point in our lives have come to understand, and it's this. In order to solve a problem, you first need to know what the problem is. Would you all agree with that? Yeah. Even if you're not a believer in Jesus, like this one is, this is good, right? You got that? Stated another way, it is impossible to solve a problem when you don't know from the outset what's wrong. It's like this. I'll tell you a little quick, piece, a quick peek into the excitement that is my life. We had air conditioning problems at our house. Yeah, I know, right? Florida, it's not a good thing. So we had an air conditioning guy come out and take a look. And he came to the house, and he asked me to show him where the air handler was located. I I took him to the place where I figured it was located. I guessed right. And then he asked me what I wanted him to do. Most of you know this about me already, but for those of you who don't, I'm not what you would call mechanically inclined. I mean, I know how to use the thermostat, and I know how to use the app for the thermostat that's on my phone. But that's about it. So I knew that the air conditioner wasn't working, but I had no clue what I needed him to do. But I am a guy. So of course I did my best to pretend I knew what I was talking about so I could give him an answer and not feel completely useless. But I did not really do a very good job of it. But thankfully, he knew what he was doing, and he was able to fix the problem. In a similar way, you know, I don't know if you're around my age in your car, something goes wrong, you pop the hood, so you take a look. But there's absolutely no way you know what you're looking at anymore, unless you're a professional. Well, in a similar way, many of you have been trying to fix yourselves for quite a while. And maybe you've read read books. What are they called? Self-help books. You've read books about how to fix yourself. Or maybe you've watched YouTube videos, which you can do almost anything with a YouTube video. So maybe you did that, hoping for the same thing. Maybe, Maybe your spouse or a friend made you go talk to somebody about fixing yourself. But nothing seems to work because you don't know what the problem with you is. It's impossible to solve a problem when you're not sure what the problem is to begin with. Now, that's not to say you don't have a guess as to what the problem is. You don't have a guess as to what's wrong with you. It's just that you've never been able to fix yourself. And that makes it, that makes it a big deal, walking around broken. Some of you have lost jobs because you haven't been able to fix that thing about yourself. Some of you have lost relationships because you haven't been able to fix that thing about yourself. Some of you have lost money or lost sleep. And and some of you have lost time. Some of you have lost self-esteem or reputation, even lost other important relationships in your life because there's just something about you that needs to be fixed, but you don't know what it is, so you can't fix it. Your problem may be that you don't know what your problem may be. 
And even if you've been told by someone else what they think your problem is, you still really don't know. And so you don't know how to fix it. And the bottom line to all of this is this. When it comes to fixing ourselves, we'll never truly get anywhere if we don't truly understand the problem that we have that needs to be solved. And then once we know that, we'll need to apply the correct solution to it. In this series, we're going to take a look at what the Apostle Paul said is wrong with you and what you need to do to solve it. So today, we'll start off by looking at Paul's teaching to find out what's wrong with you and what's wrong with me and what's wrong with all of us. And it's worse than you thought it was. Then over the next three weeks, we'll look at Paul's solution to what we learn today about the problem. So let's pray, and then we'll get going. Father God, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for the community you're building. Thank you for the the love that people have for one another in the room. Thank you for the care we have for our community. Thank you for your calling on our lives. As we take a look at your word today, God, we would ask that you would use it to enlighten us, to help us understand you a little bit more, help us understand ourselves a little bit more, and draw us closer to you in the process. God, we love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this series, we're going to be in the New Testament book of Romans. Now, Romans is not the easiest book in the Bible to read. In my and a very humble opinion, it's the second hardest book in the Bible to understand. The first one is the prophet Isaiah. That is, that is a killer. But in the New Testament, Romans wins hands down. Romans is a tough book. But notwithstanding, Romans is where we need to go to solve the problem that we face when we want to solve ourselves. Romans will give us the answer. So we'll start off a little bit of background on the book of Romans itself. The Apostle Paul, just call him Paul, Paul wrote the book of Romans in around 57 AD. So remember, Jesus, people believe, was crucified and resurrected right around 33 AD. So it's not very long after that. And it was written as a letter to the believers, to the followers of Jesus who lived in Rome at the time. Now, Paul had never been to Rome. But he wrote the letter to the Roman believers to provide direction for them and to provide encouragement for them and to provide guidance to the believers who lived there. And he intended his letter, even though it's going to sound a bit harsh, he intended it to be a loving acknowledgement of the difficulties that all believers face, which makes it important for us, important for us to understand too, because we are believers, those of you who are believers in here. Now, Romans is a deeply, deeply theological book, and and it kind of has this stream of consciousness vibe to it. And, And part of that could possibly be because most of these books were written by dictation. So you didn't go back and white things out or erase them on the screen and then redo that. So it kind of like you say something and then you go, oh, wait, let me me go back and fill in something I missed. And so it kind of has this stream of consciousness to it. So Romans takes a lot of focus to understand Paul's points. But thankfully, we don't have to do all the hard work ourselves. Theologians over the last 2,000 years have really done the hard work necessary to navigate Paul's work. So with all of this in mind... 
Let's get going. Now, our main teaching today is going to come to us from Romans chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you know, you can open to 5. Keep your finger there for a moment. If not, I'll be up on the screen, of course. But to get us all on the same page, before we go to Romans 5, we're going to go to Romans 7. Like I said, it's a bit stream of consciousness. We have to jump around a little bit. So in Romans 7, we find Paul's description of his life before he discovered the solution to the problem that we're going to talk about today. This is about to get a little bit confusing, so do your best to stay with me. Here's what Paul wrote in Romans 7:15. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Confusing? Yes. All those do's make it a bit muddled. But it actually makes basic sense. And, and, and here's what it means. It, it, it is safe to say that no matter how religious you are or how unreligious you are, on some level, you know in your heart that there are some things you should do and some things that you shouldn't do. Would you agree with that? We all, we all kind of know that. In fact, even though I don't know everything about each of you, I do know this one thing about all of you. You don't consistently do what you think you should do. Even though you, like everybody else in the world, you have this internal sense of what you should do, sometimes you still don't do it. In fact, it's almost like there are two of you. There's a here's what I ought to do version of you, and there's a I'm going to do whatever I feel like doing no matter what version of you. You ever stop and ask yourself, what is that about? Well, Paul's going to tell us what he thinks it's about. We should listen to him, and here's why. First off, Paul was a brilliant guy. He was, he was a well-trained scholar. He studied under a renowned rabbi. But more importantly, he was friends with Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And he spent a lot of time with other people who studied under the teachings of Jesus, who sat under Jesus. And God chose Paul to take the significance of the crucifixion and the significance of the resurrection and synthesize both into the implications for our everyday lives. God revealed to Paul some extraordinary conclusions about what your problem is and what my problem is and what the solution to our problem is. And then he tied it all back to his struggle with which we can all relate. So Paul continues here in Romans 7. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For if I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. This feels a lot like verses 15 and 16, right? A lot of, a lot of do, 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 do. But we can relate to these verses. Why don't we do what we're supposed to do? I mean, seriously, for heaven's sake, what's wrong with us? That doesn't make any sense. Imagine, just imagine how great church would be if we could just get ourselves under control like that. Think about it. If we could just do what we're supposed to do all the time, well, for one thing, our sermons would be a lot shorter, really. 
I mean, nobody would need me to come up here and tell everyone, you need to be better. Because we'd all be doing the things we already know we need to be doing. Like, do you really need somebody to tell you that you need to take care of yourself? You really need that? Do you really need to be told your body is a gift from God? Take care of yourself. Do you really need somebody to tell you that you shouldn't be fantasizing about that person? Or you shouldn't be looking online at that stuff? Do do you really need anybody to tell you to be diligent, to, to work hard, to stay focused, to take your responsibilities seriously? Do you really need any more advice? No, you do not need any more advice. The problem isn't that you don't know what to do, that we don't know what to do. The problem is we don't know why we do the bad we do. And we just can't figure out how to fix it. Now, that's a bit of a harsh thing to say to people, and I understand that. But I'm pretty sure you already knew it. You already had some understanding as to what's wrong with you. And I'm guessing you've tried at one time or another in your life to do something to fix it. But you haven't been successful. Well, today and for the next few weeks, we're going to look at what Paul described 2,000 years ago as an explanation of the problem. And then we'll examine the solution that he offered. Now, for some of us, there are things we wish we could stop doing, but we just can't stop. It's like there is some sort of power that's keeping us from stopping. Now, for others, there are things we know we need to start doing, but we just can't do them either. In other words, there are things we know we need to change, but we just can't change them. And Paul spoke into all of that. And Paul essentially said this, well, maybe you don't know what the problem is to begin with. So let me explain what the problem is, and then I'll offer you a solution. So that's where we start. Now we're going to go over to Romans 5. So here's Romans 5, verse 6. Here we go. You see, Paul wrote, at just the right time when we were still powerless. So here Paul starts off by referring to something he's going to talk about later. This sense of powerlessness that we have. This sense of, wow, I want to, but I can't. It's like like there's this power that comes over me, and I just can't. At the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So this presents us with our first hurdle. Because in order to understand the problem we're dealing with, and to understand what the solution is, we have to acknowledge the reality as Paul describes it. We have to acknowledge that there's a reality about us. And here's what that reality is. We're ungodly. We're ungodly. What does that mean? Very churchy word, right? Here's what it means. But that particular statement is probably not anything we would say. We would never walk around describing ourselves, well, I'm just ungodly. We wouldn't say that, but we would all agree that we're not perfect. Will we all agree with that? If you don't agree with that, I want to talk to your spouse, or I want to talk to your roommate, or I want to talk to your best friend, right? We're not perfect. And because God is perfect, and we are imperfect, it follows that We are not like God. Does that make sense? Now, we are not like God, and that makes us ungodly. Now, let me continue on. If we change the prefix from imperfect to unperfect, 
Now it makes more sense. Watch this. God is perfect, and we are unperfect. And from there it follows that we're not like God. Therefore, we are what? Ungodly. Well, that makes sense. That's what that means. It means we're not like God. We're unlike God. We are ungodly. Now, we're not ungodly because we are, each of us, as bad as we could possibly be. Think about that. Think about if you were as bad as you could possibly be all the time. But that's not why we're ungodly. We are simply ungodly because we are not God. We are ungodly. We're all ungodly because we're all not perfect. All of us not perfect. You got that? Now we're going to keep going. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So if you think about it, it's kind of weird. Paul was telling us that Jesus, the Christ, remember, Christ is not his last name, it's his job title. So Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the perfect son of God, died for the ungodly. So who did he die for? He died for us. That's weird. That is so unusual. Who would do that. Paul actually acknowledged just how weird that is. Here's what he said. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Now, people aren't running around dying for just, just dying for people, right? Though a good person might possibly dare to die. In other words, Paul's saying, yeah, a person might possibly consider dying for a good person. But it'd be really odd for a person, no matter how good they are, to die for a bad person person. That's kind of what he's saying. Then he continues. Verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are you going like, wait a minute. All right. Russell, I let it slide. You called me ungodly. All right. But now you're calling me a sinner? What's up with that? Yes, Paul was calling us, all of us, as well as himself, He was calling us all ungodly sinners. Now, I want you to take a second and just think about how powerful that statement is that Paul had made. When Paul wrote this statement 2,000 years ago, in his time, in his day, there were still people around who were alive when Jesus died. There were still people around who'd seen it, who'd been there, who, who were witnesses. So here's what Paul was actually saying. Paul's saying is while Jesus was in the process of being nailed to a cross outside of Jerusalem, his compatriots and I, you know, the disciples, were just a few dozen miles away, sinning like crazy. And we weren't even thinking about it. He's on this cross dying for us, and we're sinning like crazy. So at the exact same time that we were actively sinning, Paul says, Jesus was literally in the middle of dying for us ungodly sinners. Who would do that? He was thinking, if Jesus only knew, there's no way he would do that. And then Paul's like, you know, I, I mean, sure, yeah. I mean, you might run across some do-gooder who would lay down his or her life for a good person. But, but who would die for the sins of another person at the exact same time that the other person is actively sinning? At the exact same time that the other person is completely indifferent, maybe even being defiant toward the person making the ultimate sacrifice. It was all happening at the same time. So these verses encapsulate Paul's quite stunning realization. 
This Jesus, whom Paul never physically met. If you remember, Paul encountered Jesus post-resurrection on the road to Damascus. He saw, he saw Jesus appear, but he never, never physically met him. At that very moment, Jesus was being nailed to the cross while Paul was running around sinning. And in that very moment, Jesus died for the sins that Paul was committing at that moment, that very day. Who would do that? God would do that. And that's why Paul said God demonstrates his own love because God demonstrated a different kind of love. Now, for us 2,000 years later, it has a little bit of a different meaning. For us 2,000 years later, it means that when Christ died, he died for sins that would be committed way in the future, but are past for us. He died for the sins that we're committing at this moment. I don't know what's going through your minds right now, but I'm sure some of you are sinning. And he died for the sins we're going to commit later today. Because I got news for you. You're going to sin later today. As am I. And he died for the sins we're going to commit in the future. Who would do that? Now, if we're following Paul's argument, there's a question that arises. What exactly is this thing that makes us ungodly sinners? Well, as we just talked about, we know we're not perfect, but ungodly sinners, it seems a bit harsh. Is it because of something we did? And Paul then changes direction. And this, you get this a lot in the book of Romans. There's a lot of direction changing. And he takes us into some of the most complex and significant teaching in all of the New Testament. So hang on to your seats. Here's where he goes next. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... Death always follows sin, you'll see in the Bible. So here, Paul was moving along in a particular direction. It's like he loses his train of thought. And he goes somewhere else for a few minutes. Oh, what was I saying? Anyway, and then he drops this big, giant, important thing on us. This thing that sin entered the world through one man, and death entered the world through that sin. This thing is something theologians call the federal headship of Adam. Ugh, this sounds like a seminary class. I'll work through it. I'm going to take a few minutes and try to explain what Paul said. Essentially, here's what he said. Paul explained that sin was a thing. Sin was not a verb. Sin was not an action word. Sin was a thing. Sin was a noun. Now, at one time, there was no sin in the world. But then sin entered the world. How did sin enter the world? Paul explained, sin entered the world through one man, whom Paul would identify as the first man, Adam. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world like a disease. We're going to talk about that in the next few weeks. So it's important to understand what we're starting with here. Sin is a thing. Sin is a noun, and it's a noun that results in a verb. It's a noun that results in an action. It's a, it's a thing that results in a verb, an act, sinning. Okay, so sin results in sinning. Okay? As a result, one of the reasons you've not been able to change is that you've addressed the wrong things. You, you've addressed the wrong things you've done as just verbs. You've never dealt with the whole problem as a noun. And Paul said that this thing, this sin, this power, this whatever you want to call it, entered the world through one man. 
And then right behind sin, death followed, because death always follows sin. And I'm going to guess you know that on some level. If you have a bad habit or an addiction, you've seen the death that follows it. Maybe you killed a relationship. Or maybe you killed a career. Or maybe you killed a friendship. Or maybe, and I've met people over the years who fit into this category, maybe you've actually killed a person because of your sin. Paul said that wherever sin goes, death is right behind it. So it follows that it's because of sin that we're ungodly. It's because of sin that we're all dying. Death always follows sin. When sin entered the world, death was right on its heels. This is how Paul explained the relationship between sin and death. And it's why we can't seem to do the things we want to do. So it looks like this. So this is the federal headship of Adam. If you have a seminary test this week, you can write this down. Looks like this. Adam sinned. Sin entered the world. And on the heels of sin came death. Paul continues. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So here, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying this. At the outset, there was only Adam. There was only Adam. Can you all see my Adam bowl up here? This is Adam. You see what's next to Adam? This is Christ. So here we have Adam. And because Adam was the first man, in a sense, all of us are in Adam. Paul would explain this better in a little bit. So that which Adam did, we all did, because Adam was the first person and we all come from him. It's interesting, scientists have now seen that we all share a common genetic link. Isn't that interesting? Bible didn't talk about that. So Adam's the first person. We're all in Adam. And through Adam, sin entered the world. And it's because we're all in Adam that we're all in sin. Everybody was in sin. So, this is me. Okay? I am in Adam. I was born in sin. This is my wife, Beth. Now, those of you who know Beth... Don't think I should put that in the bowl. (laughs) But I have to. Okay? This is Beth. She was born in sin. (laughs) That's terrifying. Please don't tell her. It'll go right to her head. Goodness. Wow. Billy, you want to... I'm going to have Bill try to put this back in the atom bowl. Let's see if Beth stays. If she doesn't stay in the atom bowl, I'm just done. We're going to say amen. Okay, good. All right. This is my son, Dylan. He's my older son. Guess what? Born in Adam. This is my son, Quinn. He's the younger one. Born in Adam. Born in sin. Everybody following me so far? You good? All right. Paul said that when Adam sinned, everybody that would ever be born would be born in Adam. And because everybody was born in Adam, when Adam sinned, it's as if we all sinned. That sin contaminated Adam. That sin contaminated the entire human race, which means your problem 
isn't your sinning. Your problem is that you were born a sinner. Got that? And the reason you were born a sinner was not because of anything you did. It's because of the person you're related to, Adam. Now, upon hearing this, you might say, that is not fair. And Paul would say, you're right. It's not fair. But remember, fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. Nothing has been fair on earth since the Garden of Eden. It's like when a child is born to a mother who lived an irresponsible life. Maybe you've dealt with this kind of situation. It's tragic. It's horrible. It's not fair. But it's still true, right? All the horrible things that happen in the world are tragic and not fair, but they're true. You were born in Adam, so you were born a sinner. And the reason nobody has to teach you how to sin is that in Adam, sin comes naturally. Sin entered the world through his one trespass. So sin infected the entire human race. You want to test that theory? Try this out. Have you ever met a two-year-old? Anybody ever met a two-year-old? You ever heard how people describe human beings at that age? What do they call them? They're terrible twos. We all know that. Now, we don't teach two-year-olds how to sin, do we? No. To that, Paul would say, that's what I'm talking about. There it is. That's sin. And wherever sin goes, death goes. So eventually, every person realizes it's as if there's something in me that I, that I can't seem to control. We're going to come back to that later. It's important. But Paul said, we all sin when Adam sinned. So from there, Paul began to draw a contrast. And things got more complicated. So in verse 15, Paul says this, but the gift is not like the trespass. And we go, the gift? What the heck is that? Up until this moment, he's not mentioned any word about gift. What's he talking about? Well, he's about to define that for us. But for the moment, know that the gift is the gift of a right standing with God. The gift of righteousness. That's what that means. Righteousness means I'm in a right standing with God. It's the gift of justification. You know when you justify words on a document, they all line up on the end? That's what justification is. It lines us up to what God, to what God wants us for and what God made us for. It's as if God looks at you and says, I see you as someone who is completely forgiven just as if you never sinned. That's righteousness, and that's a gift, and it's something God gives us. But that gift is not like the trespass. All right, so we go, what's the trespass? Another new word. The trespass was the one act of Adam in the garden that, contempt, that condemned all men. So Paul said, but this gift that you received when you became a believer is a little different than the trespass. And we say, all right, Paul, explain that to us. And Paul says, okay. So he goes on. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, so if the many, that's all of us in Adam, everybody in Adam, even Beth, it's as if all of us were born dead born separated from God by our sin. If we all died because of the one trespass of the one man, Adam, he continues, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So here Paul introduces another character. He introduces us to Jesus, to the Christ. Essentially, here's what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, here's what you've got to understand. 
Just as we were all born in Adam, when you become a Christian, you were taken out of Adam and you were placed into Christ. So here we go. Taking Quinn out of Adam, putting him in Christ. Taking Dylan out of Adam, putting him in Christ. Taking Beth out of Adam. If she bounces out of this one, we're in trouble. And putting her in Christ. And finally, taking me out of Adam, putting me in Christ. In the next few verses, Paul's saying the contrast between those things, between being born in Adam and sin and being placed in Christ, makes all the difference. See, Paul's explanation was intended for people who are wondering, why can't I do what I ought to do? Why can't I seem to do the right things that I want to do? And I can't stop doing the things that are wrong, that I don't want to do. Is there any way out of all of that? And Paul says, stay with me. Because that feeling you're feeling comes from your having been born in Adam. But the gift of being in Christ, of having a right standing with God, isn't like the problems that arise from being born in Adam. The gift of being in Christ is much more powerful than those problems in Adam. Paul continues. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. Essentially, Paul's saying this incredible thing that God has done for us through Christ can't be compared to the result. But Paul continues. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Paul's saying, all right, when we're born in Adam, we were born condemned. But we weren't born condemned because of anything we did. We were born condemned because we were born from the one man, Adam, who was condemned because of his one activity, sinning, rebelling against God. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. In other words, because we were born in Adam, we were born condemned. But when we're taken out of Adam and placed into Christ, we're given the gift of a right standing with God. And we're given the gift of justification. To which, if you've been a part of church for a while, you would probably say this. Right, I understand that. That means we go to heaven when we die. And Paul would say, well, yes, that's true, but that's not what I'm getting at here. Paul would say, yes, when you die someday, you'll go to heaven. But I'm talking about what being in Christ means right here and right now right here and right now, it just looks like we just can't do what we ought to do. Right now, we can't do what the law requires us to do. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean the Bible law. It means the law law. We can't do what the law wants us to do. Do you all do 30 miles an hour when you're driving in a 30 mile an hour zone? No, you don't. I follow you guys around. I know it. Some of you do 15. But some do 60. Okay, so it's a law thing too. But we think, I can't please God. I can't even please myself. And it's due to this sin that dwells in me. Paul's saying then that the implications of moving from in Adam to in Christ are not just about what happens when you die. The implications are also about a way of living here and now, to which we might ask, are you just going to tell us to try harder Paul, is that what you're going to say? Is this where this is going? Just try harder. To which Paul would reply, no. Because this has nothing to do with what you've tried. This is all about what was true of you 
and what has now become true of you. Verse 17. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness, this is where he defines what he means by gift, reign where? In life. How much more will that gift reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? Here Paul's saying, I'm telling you that if you understand the significance of this, you can reign in life. You can reign over all the power that seems to overpower you as a result of your being born a condemned sinner and Adam. You can reign in life, here we go, through the one man, Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is important. If you've tried to read the New Testament, and I hope most of you have, you're always telling me you have, so I hope you have, you'll keep running into phrases like in Christ and through Christ. Now, these phrases refer to the life of a believer. If you're in Christ, you have a brand new way to live on this earth. A life through Adam is a life in which you're overpowered with the power of sin. A life through Christ overpowers that which happened to us when we were living through Adam. So Paul concluded this way. Consequently, just as one trespass, Adam's sin, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, that's Jesus dying on the cross, overpowering sin, breaking the power of sin, paying the penalty for sin. Okay, so this one act of righteousness resulted in justification in life for all people. So to sum it all up, Adam did something wrong and it affected everybody. Jesus did something right and undid what Adam had done. Adam did one thing and it resulted in condemnation for all who were born in Adam and Jesus in one act of obedience that mirrors but overpowers the one act of disobedience has provided a way for us to not simply go to heaven when we die, but to live a new kind of life. So Paul concluded, verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners because of how you were born and who you were born in. Your sin is just an outgrowth of that. It's, your sin is just what's true of you at your core, just because of that. So also, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. All right, you got all that? Jesus' righteousness takes care of the problem that Adam's sin caused. And we're going to pick up on that next week. So let's wrap it up for now. Paul's saying this. If your approach to the Christian life is thank you for forgiving me of my sins, God, and now I'm going to do my very best to be like Jesus and do what he wants me to do. Paul's saying, good luck with that. Ain't going to work. Paul was saying, that was what, that's what I was talking about. When I wrote those verses about not being able to do the things I know I need to do, that's what he was talking about. But now I hope you see that when you accept Jesus... And place your faith in Jesus. Turn your back on that sin. Understand what Jesus did for you on that cross. Put your faith in Jesus for what God has done for you through Christ. Something happens to you foundationally. Something happens at your core. Something fundamentally changes in who you are. And in the verses and chapters that follow, Paul says, I'm going to teach you how to live out of this 
just as you've gotten accustomed to living out of this. This is about reigning in life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Many of us never realized that. Which is why in the next part of Romans, Paul's going to keep on asking his audience, didn't you know? Didn't you know? You're going to see, didn't you know? They didn't know. But they would, and we will. Being in Christ is about reigning in this life by learning to allow Christ to live through us, just like Adam's fallen, condemned nature had always manifested itself through us until we got here. This is where we're going to go in the next few weeks. You with me? Then let's all say amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for helping us through a difficult piece of scripture. Thank you for showing us that sin is built in when we're born, but Jesus is our way out. God, we're excited to see how you'll guide us as we continue on in this message, in this series free. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.